reading this morning is from Psalm chapter 52. And the instructions at the beginning say, A masculine of David, when Doag the Edomite went and reported to Saul, telling him, David went to Alimelech's house. This is what it reads. Why boast about evil, you hero? God's faithful love is constant. Like a sharpened razor, your tongue dece- devises destruction, working treachery. You love evil instead of good, lying instead of speaking truthfully. You love any words that destroy, you treacherous tongue. This is why God will bring you down forever. He will take you, ripping you out of your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and will derisively say about that hero, here is the man who would, who would not make God his refuge, who trusted in the abundance of his riches, taking refuge in his destructive behavior. But I am like a flourishing olive tree in the house of God. I trust in God's faithful love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In the presence of your faithful people, I will put my hope in your name, for it is good. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we know that you are high above the heavens, seated on a throne that looks down upon this earth and knows all that we do. For in our flesh, we must confess that we do love evil instead of good. We do prefer lying instead of the truth. But Lord, you give each according to their ways. And so may we know and trust truly and genuinely that the one who is blessed makes you their strength, but the one who is cursed puts the strength, trust in our flesh. Be with Pastor Jeff this morning. Help us to walk through this passage that you may be glorified by our response. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. With respect to that shelf out there and those books, those resources, I hear there's a great one on the Holy Spirit. Really good. <laughs> it's probably the best one out there, actually. Um, <laughs> Uh, Also, uh, if you want to follow along with me and track with my message today, there's an outline of the sermon in today's bulletin. Please do look at that. And one other extra announcement is that in February, some of you may be interested to know that Pastor Ryan, Patty, and myself, we will be leading a Wednesday night inductive study through the book of Genesis uh, and so if, you're, if that's something you're interested in, if you have not been able to plug into a class or a group and you really just want to come and meet some people and, and walk through the Bible, that is just going to be an awesome study walking through Genesis. So I encourage you to put that on your calendar. Come on out. We'll give you the, the, the exact date that we're going to start that very, very soon, probably this week. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel 22. We were in that chapter last week. The title of my message today is... None of you cares about me. Saul unravels in delusional paranoia. Uh, We said last week that really we have five distinct scenes in the chapter. Now, we covered the first two last week. We're going to cover the other three uh, today. Um, And so, Psalm 52, I had uh, Pat read that because that is actually a message that David has for Doeg. I halfway think that when David wrote that maskil, when he wrote that psalm, that Doeg was still alive, and he was still waiting for him to get his comeuppance, right? Um, Howard Hughes, an American business magnate, aviator, filmmaker, rose to fame in the early 20th century for his achievements in aviation and his success in the film industry. 
However, as the years went by, Howard Hughes became increasingly reclusive and famously, uh, infamously reclusive, and his isolation led to a growing paranoia. In the 1940s, Hughes retreated from public life, obsessing over matters of privacy and personal cleanliness and personal security. And as Hughes' uh, seclusion intensified, his, he communicated primarily through just a few, just one or two employees. And near the end of his life, he, his associates hadn't seen him for quite some time, and so they became alarmed. Even for him, this was unusually uh, secluded, unusually isolated. And when his staff and associates discovered Hughes' body in the penthouse at the Acapulco Fairmont Princess Hotel, uh, they found him to be extremely emaciated. His hair and beard and fingernails had, had wildly overgrown. And by the time of his death in 1976, one of the richest, most famous men in the world with the most promise. Some historians have said that Howard Hughes was the greatest American that America ever produced, like the most ingenious uh, guy who had ever lived in America. That man had transformed from a bold entrepreneur and a pioneer into a cautionary tale of a destructive person and the destructive effect of extreme isolation and paranoia. And our story today is documenting a similar trajectory for Saul. We encounter a similar downward spiral occurring in the king. We covered the first two scenes last week, like we said, and we'll cover the rest of them this week. And the third one is, the first scene or the third one in the story is Saul's paranoia and his immediate accusations. Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered uh, at that time. Saul was in Gibeah sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. Make note of that. It says, his spear was in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants, listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give all of you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make all of you commanders of, of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servants to wait in ambush for me, as is the case today. So in, place, in a place where God's glory should be evident to all, Israel's palace has become a haunted mansion. Saul spends his days pacing and ruminating, mumbling murderous plots, dreaming of nothing else but killing his perceived rival, David. Saul's mental life is really beginning to deteriorate here, his thoughts choking now on the fumes, the poisonous fumes of suspicion. Every whisper, every glance, and every action is perceived as betrayal. Paranoia has now consumed the has-been king. And so, some principles that I think we see here very, very clearly is that isolation and idolatry breed paranoia. Notice where he is. He's alone. And it says that he's sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. Now, if you study that phrase in the rest of the Old Testament, right now we're in the former prophets. If you study it in the latter prophets, what you'll find is sitting under the tamarisk or being near the tamarisk on the high place 
is code in the text for idolatry. What the author wants his Jewish readers to see quite clearly is that this man has left the faith of his fathers. He's left God. God has left him, but now he has left God for sure. Next, we see that the paranoid mind is plagued by made-up stories about others. This is what paranoia leads us to. We see this as Saul lashes out at those closest to him. Notice that he calls them the men of Benjamin, the Benjaminites. These are his homies from the tribe of Benjamin. He grew up with these people. These are the people when when Saul was promoted to king, he just brought them his most trusted friends with him and, and promoted them to positions of authority. And notice what he's accusing them of. He says, do you think, is this what David promised you? David David promised you that you would have fields and vineyards and you would be in command of hundreds and thousands of troops, legions of troops. Is that what he promised in return for you colluding against me? This is all made up in his head. He, He is just filling in the blanks. This world that he lives in doesn't exist. It's not real. It's not true. And so he just makes up stories about other people. We also see that paranoid suspicion has led to the loss of vital relationships. This is what paranoia does. This is what a life that is ruled by suspicion in the heart does to us. It chases everyone who is important to us out of our lives. And we just become isolated and we become alone, desperately, tragically alone. Gone is David, the palace worship pastor, whose whose music once filled the halls quieting Saul's beleaguered and tormented mind. A man with such initial promise, Saul is now obsessed with pursuing his political rivals at the expense of all else. The cost of becoming blinded by his rage and suspicion is his inability to rule, his inability to govern, his inability to actually do anything that benefits the commonwealth. And I'm here to tell you, anyone who is a leader at any level If they make it their life's mission to just engage in retribution against their enemies such that they cannot govern well, that person is a terrible leader. And Saul, at the end of the day, has just become a terrible king. This is not the guy you want running your country. We also see Saul's erratic paranoia, which leads to rejection of needed guidance and perspective now estranged from friends, adrift from his Jewish faith, and spurning wise counsel, he is capable of anything. This man has now become capable of anything, except for empathy. He's become a malignant narcissist. He's become sadistic and cruel. You do not want to end up like this. The author is trying to tell you this is not where you, where you want your life to end up. And our application today is quite clear. We must seek healthy fellowship in Christ's body in order to avoid fostering an environment of mistrust. We must seek healthy fellowship in Christ's body and Christ's family in order to avoid fostering an environment of constant, constant mistrust between each other. God designed the Christian life not to be codependent or independent, but to be interdependent. God designed our life in the body for us to, be, to live it in mutual support, mutual encouragement, mutual strengthening. 
This is how God designed the Christian life. And it's very easy for us to imagine the worst if we haven't had a conversation with the people that we disagree with. Regular face-to-face fellowship in the Holy Spirit is the antidote to a life of empty suspicion. Regular face-to-face contact in the Holy Spirit is the antidote to a life that is just beleaguered, plagued by constant suspicious thoughts. And, and Solomon, David's son, shows us the way. He gives us the principle in this very famous passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He says, again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a, a son or a brother. They're utterly alone. And though there is no end to all their struggles, his eyes uh, are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things for? This, too, is futile and miserable. This is a miserable task, a miserable life. Two, he says, are better than one because they have good rewards for their efforts when they combine their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can, they can snuggle up and keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. But here's something that's even better. A cord of three is not easily broken, so three is even better than two. (laughs) In other words, we need community. We need face-to-face, Holy Spirit-indwelt community and fellowship with one another. Solomon articulates the futility of going it alone. We share our struggles, and we offer each other mutual support, and we develop a resilience that you cannot find outside of community. We're in isolation. It is no accident that the scene right before Saul goes on his retribution tour is one of delusional paranoia fueled by extreme isolation and his idolatry and his isolation from wise, godly counsel and people in his inner circle. This is what a life of idolatry and isolation brings us, and the author is trying to tell you and me, don't go this path. Don't go that way. Number two, the the next scene we see is Doeg's betrayal and its inevitable, inexorable consequences. This is in verse 9. It says, Then Doeg, the Edomite who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath, uh, the Philistine. Guess what else I saw? (laughs) You know, like you get this sense in which he is telling on David. He is ratting him out. And if you remember the scene back a couple of chapters ago, what happened was David had come to Nob and he was looking for anything, just resources, bread. Do you have a sword on hand? And Ahimelech is there to offer him assistance. He doesn't know that there is a beef. And so this guy named Doeg, who is this clandestine plant, who is there, uh, he sees the whole thing go down, and now he is reporting all of this back to Saul. It says the king sent messengers to summon the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were priests of Nob. All of them came to the king, and then Saul said, Listen, son of Ahitub, I'm at your service, my lord, he said. Saul asked him, Why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? He's, he's, he's enraged. 
You gave him bread and a sword and inquired. You prayed for him. How dare you pray for my enemies? You inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and and wait in ambush, as is the case today. Ahimelech tries to reason with him. Look at his words. Look at the reason. He's right about everything. He replied to the king, whom among your servants is more faithful than David? He is the king's son-in-law, is he not? Captain of your bodyguard and honored in your house. Was today the first time I ever prayed for him? Was today the first time I ever uh, inquired of God for him? Of course not. Please don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant didn't have any idea about all of this, and the king just loses it. You will die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. And then the king ordered the guards standing by him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they sided with David, for they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. But the king's servants wouldn't do it. They would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, his henchman, his mafia hitman, He says to Doeg, go and execute the priest. So Doeg, the Edomite, went and executed the priest himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. That's what priests wear, is the linen ephod. He killed them all. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword, both men and women and infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. When was Saul commanded to do that? When he was fighting Israel's enemies and he didn't do it. And now... He's killing the priests of Israel, every man, woman, and child, sheep, ox, house dog, all of them. This man has truly fallen far. Our observation today is that Saul vents his rage, and he unleashes a tempest on the priests at Nob and all of their families and men overtaken by paranoia see conspiracies against them everywhere. Every whisper, every conversation, every glance in their direction, thin accusations follow, and they mask a desperate clinging to a crown that has already been taken from him. He hasn't had the crown for quite some time. And then, like a serpent in the grass, Doeg relays what he's seen. Aid and comfort had been given to Saul's enemies. Saul's eyes glaze over with vengeance as he orders Doeg to slaughter every one of them. Yet beneath the blood-soaked walls, beneath the blood-soaked ground and this bloody scene, I want you to see something you may have missed, and that is God's unchanging word. Many chapters earlier, God had promised to end Eli's priestly lineage, to purge Israel's priesthood of corrupt and inept leadership, In the priestly house, this is that moment. This is the moment in which God is making good on that promise to Eli and his descendants. These are his descendants. God is actually wiping them out. And so we see that promise many chapters earlier. So the judgment is now coming to pass. Whether Doeg thinks that he's he's acting in, in the benefit of the kingdom or whether he thinks that he's acting for his own self-interest, we don't know the reason, whatever the reason, he makes a choice that puts him squarely, I want you to see, squarely in the plan of a sovereign God who is somehow orchestrating the entire plot. 
And he also damns himself because he is opposing God's ultimate will to make David king. Both of those things are true. Don't miss the theology of the passage. This entire scene is happening according to the foreknowledge and plan of God to fulfill the prophecy made to Eli that his priestly line would be terminated for corruption. But the people who are the instruments of Ahimelech's death and his family and Nob, they are liable for their choices. Doeg is responsible for betraying God's elect, anointed King David and for this massacre. And Saul is answerable for his role as an unhinged tyrant who gave the order. And both of those things are true. God is working. God is orchestrating this. And men are acting. And they're going to be held accountable for their actions. So the principles, some of the principles that we draw out of this, I think, would be betrayal leads to inevitable consequences. Whether through gossip, breaking faith, abandoning marriage vows, divulging secrets, breaking confidentiality. Anyone who's experienced the sting of betrayal knows how deep that wound goes. The sin can be forgiven, but the consequences cannot easily be avoided. Doeg is Saul's enabler, not only willing to betray David, but to carry out an unimaginable horror against the priests and their families. And most, and the second thing that I want you to see here is that most of the instruments God used in history to discipline Israel and its leaders, He then destroyed. He then destroyed them. This is why, if you remember in Psalm 52, verse 5, as we read at the top of the sermon, this is why God... This is why David says this straight to Doeg. He says, this is why God will bring you down forever. That is down to hell. He will take you ripping, scratching, and clawing out of your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. If I could rename Psalm 52's the message to Doeg and put it in modern terms, a modern title, it would be Doeg's lesson, snitches get stitches right? David is saying, you may, have even th you may have even thought that you were acting in the kingdom's best interest. You may have even thought that you were acting on behalf of God, but your words are lies. Your actions are treachery, and God, not me, God is going to judge you. God is the one who's going to bring you down. And think of every instrument God ever used to judge or discipline Israel and their leaders, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Persia, Rome, you name it. Every instrument that God used to judge or discipline Israel, he then discarded. He then judged and destroyed because the people in that judgment were all too willing. They were licking their chops, smacking their lips, couldn't wait to do God's elect people harm. And so God judges them too. Doeg doesn't know it, but what he is doing, what Saul has commanded of him, is part of God's sovereign plan to rid the priesthood of Eli's descendants. But Doeg and Saul are both still responsible, culpable for their choices and their actions. And I think our application here today is if we are the object of someone's betrayal, we extend forgiveness, we expect repentance, and we leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. Those are the three things we must do. 
We extend forgiveness so far as it is up to us. Not everything is up to us. Do you know that? In every conflict, not everything is up to you. So as far as it is up to us, we extend forgiveness because we have been commanded to do that, in fact, by Jesus. We also expect repentance. We don't just expect for that person to become a repeat offender, do we? And just glibly saying, well, I'm sorry, and then doing it the next day or maybe the next hour. We expect repentance. We extend forgiveness. We expect genuine, true, turning away from sin, and then we leave vengeance and judgment and discipline in the hands of the Lord because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? So if you have been slighted, if you have been betrayed and you have experienced this, this is one of the hardest things to walk through. This is one of the hardest things to walk according to in the Word, to obey Jesus' teachings, to obey Paul's commands, to obey the Word, and extend that forgiveness and expect a high bar of repentance and to leave it all up to God. But what about someone close to us? What happens when someone really close to us betrays us? Another song by David recalls a time when he had been betrayed. Listen to the heartache in this psalm. Listen to the bleeding heart in this psalm. Now, this psalm must be about uh, his son, Absalom, Joab, or Saul. I halfway think, I'm tempted to think that this was actually written to Saul. This is what he says. Now, it is not an enemy who insults me. Otherwise, I could bear it. It is not a foe who rises up against me. Otherwise, I could just hide from him. But it is you, a man who is my peer, my companion, my good friend. We used to have good fellowship, right? Remember that? Remember when we used to have close fellowship? We walked with the crowd into the house of God. My friend now acts violently against those at peace with him. He violates his covenant. His buttery words are smooth, but war resides in his heart. His words are softer than oil, but they are drawn daggers. They are swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, David says, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. What is David's response to the one who so close to him has betrayed him? Is to cast this burden ultimately on the Lord, to give it to the Lord, and to remind this person, remember the days when we had good fellowship When we enjoyed going up to church together, to the house of the Lord together, remember those days. And now he has to cast his burden on the Lord because it is God who sustains and upholds him. It is God who stabilizes and establishes him and roots and grounds him in reality. But what if you are the betrayer? What if you're the one who betrayed another Later in David's life, this will be true about him. He will actually betray his best friend, Uriah, one of of the main men in his army. And if you recall this story, he sees Uriah's wife who is bathing on the rooftop, which you should never do. But he sees her, and he's overcome with lust. And remember her name. What is her name? Bathsheba, right? Her name is Bathsheba. And so he sleeps with her. He orders uh, for his servants to bring her up to his chambers. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And now, to, to, to uh, whitewash his sin, he sends Uriah out into the field, out into battle several times until Uriah is killed. And now he thinks he's gotten away with it. What did he do? He betrayed this man. 
He betrayed this man. And what happens when you betray others is you respond the way David did to rebuke. When Nathan comes to him and says, thou art the man, that's a powerful scene, man. We'll get there. But when he says, you are the man, David tears his clothes. David cries out for forgiveness and confesses his sin and throws uh, sackcloth and ashes, right, on his head. He throws the ashes on his head, and for days and days he will not eat. David repents before the Lord. He even writes a psalm about it, one of the most popular, famous psalms in the book of Psalms, and it's a powerful act of repentance and confession. Number two, when we have betrayed someone's trust, we ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation through repentance. So if we are the betrayer and we have betrayed someone's trust, we take the initiative to go to them and ask for forgiveness when we are confronted and to seek reconciled relationships through what? Asking for more forgiveness? No, through repentance. Walking away from the sin. I have a friend right now who is currently estranged from all of his friends in ministry. I've told you this before, but I'll tell you more. Uh, And I tell you this not to tell on him or to dish some dirt, uh, but to give you some insight into how I'm trying to process it, how I'm trying to work through it. He betrayed his wife of 45-plus years of marriage with a woman who was 15 years younger. And he ran off and left his church and ran away with this woman and divorced his wife and married her. Now he regularly posts, just about every week, almost every day, uh, these sort of shallow, empty blogs on Facebook, essentially demanding that all of us forgive him and allow him back into fellowship, quoting Jesus and Paul, who in fact commands us to forgive one another. Grace, my friend writes, means that God loves me in spite of my faults, in spite of my failings. God loves me, yes, even in spite of my betrayal. And I want to tell him, no, actually, God doesn't. No, he doesn't. He doesn't love you in your sin. God doesn't love you in your faults. Let me explain this. Just imagine for a second, heaven forbid, that your house burned down this winter, And all that was left of this house fire was a bunch of charred walls and just incinerated, just burned out rooms. Would you go around to your neighborhood, everyone in your neighborhood, or all of your friends and say, hey, you guys should come and see my house. You should see what the fire did to it. I love it. You wouldn't say that. You would say, I hate that. I hate that because of what the fire did to it. And God doesn't look at you in your sin and in your betrayal and say, oh, I love that. No, he doesn't. God hates what your sin has done to you because he hates sin. You and I were supposed to be regal image bearers of God, his co-rulers in the world. We were given a dominion vocation and we were supposed to be these regal bearers of his image and his likeness. And instead, we have become disobedient rebels in his realm. We were supposed to be his priests, mediating his glory to creation and then reflecting the glory of creation back to him. That's what a priest does. Instead, we brought defilement into his sanctuary. You and I were supposed to be the law keepers. We were supposed to be the sheriffs in town, man. 
(laughs) keeping the law, enforcing God's holy decree, his law. And instead, we become lawbreakers in his jurisdiction. Now we have to be judged by him. He has to be our judge. God does not love you in your sin. He hates what your sin has made you because it has unmade you. It has made you look like something that doesn't look like him. And that's why God hates sin. And that's why God hates us in our sin. And God loves us enough to pull us out of it so that we can go a different direction. Amen? God loves us enough to save us from out of it, out of the midst of it. But fair, fair enough. Jesus did command us to show grace, didn't he? He did command us to forgive so that we may be forgiven and to seek reconciliation above all else and leave judgment up to God. Amen. But I, I halfway think that people hold to two different false doctrines of grace. One is in Romans chapter 4. Paul talks about this. Uh, it is this false doctrine of grace that thinks that God will give me grace as a reward for all of my good works. Like after I've done my whole life of good works, then God will give me grace because I've earned it. No, Paul says that's not grace. That's just the paycheck. That's just God writing you a check for services rendered, right? That's one kind of false grace, but some of us hold to a different kind of false grace. And this is a grace that thinks that I get my ticket punched and I get my fire insurance and that's it. I just get saved by grace so I can die and go to heaven, but then between now and then, I can live however I want. Paul also addresses this in Romans. He addresses this in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, now, after he's made his case that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. No. Heavens no. Why? Because he, as he tells Timothy, this grace that has appeared in the last days saves you, and the grace that saves you now trains you to be righteous, to say no to godless passions, to say no to ungodliness. Why? Because God's ultimate goal for us is to make us like him, that we might look like his son, Jesus. And I often get the sense from my friend's rants on Facebook that what he wants is really not grace. What he has is really not grace. It's what German Lutheran pastor and prisoner of the Third Reich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, referred to as cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer famously said that the Lutheran church had embraced this cheap, cut-rate grace, which is grace without repentance, grace without transformation, grace without the cross. And I'm here to tell you, there is no such thing. Not in this book. Not in this book. It is the, the, the coming to God and saying, thank you for your love, for loving me in my sin. Thank you for loving me despite all my faults. I'll take the grace, but then I don't have to be transformed. And I'm here to tell you, I just think this, you may disagree, but I'm here to tell you, you show me a person who says I've been saved by grace and there is no corresponding evidence of a transformed life or them moving along the trajectory of sanctification, you probably have a false believer on your hands. You probably do. I should never forget that Paul did not only teach salvation by grace, but also that the same grace that saves us now trains us, now disciples us to become like Christ. Listen, all is forgiven. All is forgiven. But betrayal has consequences. Consequences that are not easily avoidable. 
And a refusal to repent of sin leaves us disfellowshipped, cut off from the vine, as isolation becomes our judgment, which we discovered is incredibly destructive to the Christian life. Thirdly, third scene, the last scene, is David's guilt and taking responsibility. Man, I love this one. This is quick. We won't be here very long, but I want to show it to you. Uh, Starting with verse 20, it says, however, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and uh, he fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that snake, that weasel, that dumb doeg, the Edomite was there that day. I saw him and that he was, he was sure to report to Saul and I myself I take responsibility for this. I am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid, for the one who wants to take my life also wants to take your life, and you'll be safe with me. What does David do here? In this final scene of the chapter between David and Abiathar, we see this poignant moment. It's a tense moment of guilt, between guilt and responsibility. And though blameless, I think David is actually blameless. David didn't bring this on his home. First of all, God sovereignly decided to wipe out Eli's line. That's a sovereign decision of the Lord. And sinful men are the ones who made those choices to make that happen. So this isn't David's fault. I I can imagine David thinking to himself, there is, look, even if Doeg tells on me, There is no way that Saul has descended and become so crazy, so sinful, that he would come down here and kill God's priests. He is not actually responsible for this takedown of Nob. He's not. But he does man up. Listen, David is a man of God. David is a man Right? He mans up. He stands up and says, even though I feel guilty, I feel terrible that, I, that something I did have, has brought this on your family, I take the responsibility of you and any family members that you have in the future onto me. And Abiathar becomes very pivotal. He becomes a very central figure in David's story going forward. He is the survive, surviving, the last surviving member of Eli's household. And so, so David shoulders the burden of, of these unintended outcomes, not with self-flagellation, but with a mature understanding of how our choices ripple outward in effects. Rather than wallowing in self-pity or guilt, he stands up and deals with it like a man. And, and if you come to any of our real men meetings, you'll learn that one of the things that we try to teach our men in order to be real men is to be men of responsibility, men who take responsibility. And this is what David gives us. He gives us that example, this gracious spirit of owning up to something he feels bad about and trying to make it right so far as he can, so far as it is up to him, is literally the opposite of Saul and Doeg. This, this usurper king who now inhabits his throne. So what's our application today? Well, it's that a mark of Christian maturity is taking responsibility for our actions and unintended consequences. This is what mature men do. This is what mature people do. They don't blame shift. They don't say, well, it's got to be someone else's problem. It's got to be these people who were around me. No, they take responsibility for themselves. This is a sign of a good man and a good leader. 
This is what they do. Now imagine if Saul and Doeg and their armies and their servants, imagine if they had chosen to be men like this. Just imagine how different the story would be, quite different actually. So in conclusion, we must begin to see healthy fellowship, healthy Holy Spirit-inhabited fellowship, face-to-face fellowship in Christ's body as the way in which God saves us. It is the antidote against fostering an environment of mistrust. It is the antidote for us walking around suspicious of each other or living in isolation and chasing everything that is good and valuable out of our lives. So let me ask you some questions this morning. Do you find yourself today enmeshed in a mistrustful or distrustful relationship or a relationship of suspicion? Might I suggest that you choose to follow Christ and extend forgiveness, require repentance, and leave, leave the judgment up to God? Are you on the receiving end this morning of a bitter betrayal? Can you choose to extend forgiveness? Can you leave judgment in the hands of God? Or, must, or do you feel like you must take revenge? Perhaps you find yourself in the position of having put yourself in, in the position of being God's instrument of judgment towards someone else. Can I caution you? Don't be so quick to move into that position. Don't be so quick to be the gun in God's hand. Be careful with that. And if you are the one who has betrayed a trust, can you humbly ask for forgiveness and confess your wrongdoing, evidenced by genuine turning away and accountability for your sin? Will you choose to do it today? Will you pray with me? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. Bow your head, close your eyes. So I have three invitations today. First of all is to the Christian. Does any of this apply to you? Any of this betrayal or this mistrust or suspicion? Have you found yourself becoming increasingly isolated because you just cannot trust the people around you? Will you just open your heart to the work of the Holy Spirit this morning? Do it. Say, God, I open my heart to just being changed, just being transformed by the spirit that is present in this community, in this gathering. My second message is for those of you who are believers, but in fact, you might be a false believer. As you sit and you listen to this message and you think, I don't know, honestly, I've I've always thought that grace is just God is super happy with saving me and leaving me a sinner saved by grace. And today I'm realizing God God doesn't have sinners saved by grace. God saves sinners so he can make them saints. God saved sin. He, God has saved me so that I could be and live according to the teachings of Jesus. And maybe that's your commitment this morning. You're just realizing, man, I, I've kind of had a false view of grace. Maybe I'm a false believer. Will you confess your sins? Will you confess your belief in what Christ has done for you on the cross and what he does for you in your life by grace? This morning, if you're here this morning and you're just an unbeliever, you're just straight up not a believer. You came today, don't even know what you think about all this. Will you consider what Jesus has done for you? You can't save yourself. Jesus Christ died on a cross to take all of your sins and to nail them to that tree. And he rose again on the third day to vindicate, to prove that he is Savior and Lord. Will you embrace him today? Will you hold onto the cross for your salvation knowing that God can do something for you that you couldn't possibly do for yourself?
salvation. Will you receive it today? In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said? Thank you.